You're listening to Theater and College Hoops. I'm Subi riding solo today. Was not able to get Taylor in the building, but I'm sure we will have him later this week. So again, on my own for this episode, except not not necessarily, not 110% alone. We did have a awesome guest joining us and a wonderful interview. So we will get to that later this episode. We're brought to you by Belly Up Media. Go download, subscribe, rate, and review us on whichever device it is that you use. Your college hooper of the day, Seth Towns. Pretty recent, pretty damn recent. Former forward for Ohio State, but he did spend much of his career at Harvard, and he had an awesome career. Let's take a look, actually. He was an AP All-American honorable mention in 2018, the Lou Henson All-American in 2018, Ivy League Player of the Year in 2018, a unanimous All-Ivy League first-team selection, uh, Ivy League Tournament All-Tournament Team in 2018. 2018 was just a great year for Seth Towns. Uh, Academic All-Big Ten when he was at Ohio State in 2022 and an OSU Scholar-Athlete. Great career for Seth Towns. And the reason I wanted to highlight him is not because of his time at Ohio State, if I'm being brutally honest. It's actually because of his time in the Ivy League at Harvard. Little Easter egg that I'll be revealing here in a few minutes. And it's a big hint. It's a big hint for who we were able to get onto the program. And we did a lot of Ivy League chatter. So Seth Towns, he is your college hooper of the day. Check out the website at theaterandcollegehoops.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter at CBB Theater. You should also follow me at Subi232 to find out where the feet is. And make sure to follow Taylor at Taylor Dammel. Let's open the curtains. wonderful episode. No need to hold it in any longer. We were lucky enough to welcome to the program ESPN college basketball host and analyst, honestly, just a renaissance man, very sharp, bright, energetic, fun individual, Dallin Cuff. You know Dallin Cuff from ESPN and the great work that he does in studio Bopping from game to game on Saturdays. He even called the VCU at St. Louis game this past Friday night. And Dallin was amazing. Open book, had a lot of great stories, in-depth stories. We talked about his playing career at Columbia. We talked about how he broke into the media space. And 
you're going to have to wait for this. Maybe just fast forward to this part of the interview, but I kid you not, somehow former Pittsburgh Steelers running back Richard Mendenhall had an impact on where Dallin Cuff is today. You're going to have to listen to the entire interview for the full context. But when I woke up this morning and when I interviewed Dallin, I had zero, zero inclination, zero clue, zero thoughts in my head that we would be discussing Richard Mendenhall. That's why I love doing this. That's why I love getting these stories. Dallin Cuff was a blast to chat with, and we'll get to that here very shortly. But before we do that, let's recap a little bit from this past weekend and also last night. I know a lot of folks are going to be looking at the slate from Monday night and saying, damn, there were really only two games, Miami and Duke, Texas going to Kansas. The rest was lacking, I suppose, wanting an area of opportunity, if I were to put it nicely in corporate speak, an area of opportunity for the schedule makers. We'll just leave it at that. But before we talk about Miami, Duke, Texas, Kansas, I'm going to throw you for a loop because I want to talk about Green Bay, not the Packers, not Aaron Rodgers at that golf tournament where he's getting heckled and there's this flirtation between him and Devontae Adams. Is he going to Vegas? Is he going to be neighbors with Tay Adams? Whatever. Uh-uh. I'm talking about Green Bay basketball and Davin Ziegler, not Sakai Ziegler, Davin Ziegler, no relation, but Ziegler for Green Bay hits a couple of shots against Milwaukee. Keep in mind, Green Bay is three and 22. Milwaukee, I believe coming into last night was tied for first place with Youngstown state in the competitive horizon league. That's going to be a fun conference tournament to keep your eye on. And Youngstown state is a blast. If you haven't watched them, watch them. They are one of the more fun teams, especially on the offensive end. But this is about Ziegler and Green Bay. He hits a shot to force a three-pointer to force overtime in Milwaukee. In overtime, he then hits the game-winning three-pointer. So in a matter of about five to seven game minutes, crunch time, 3-22 and record going up against the first-place team in the conference, Devon Ziegler hits a couple threes to give Green Bay their win. I'm telling you guys, it's not all it's not all terrible in Green Bay. Sure, Aaron Rodgers and the Packers continue to fall short. They just got owned by the Lions this past year, right? The passing of the torch might be there. Aaron Rodgers, I mean God forbid Packers fans, you may not have two Hall of Fame quarterbacks in a row in succession. But you got Ziegler, baby, and you got Green Bay, and you got to win over Milwaukee. So I wanted to highlight that first. Of course, we got to talk about Miami and Duke. I said entering this game that if Duke were to beat Miami on the road, I would have to change my opinion on them as it pertains to how deep they can go in March. I never bought into, even when they were struggling, I never really bought into Duke being a bubble team or being in danger of missing the tournament. They have a freshman who's playing at a close to all American level in Kyle Filipowski. He has been tremendous for the blue devils. John Shire truly hit on, on Filipowski. Jeremy Roach has been playing really well. I think he's the most critical part of that team's success. And he's coming off of an injury from a couple of weeks back. He looks right. He looks healthy. He took over against North Carolina and was arguably the best player on the floor there. Of course, Derek Lively, he showed some brilliance against Carolina, and so I think a lot of people were 
ready to stake their claim to dig their toes into Duke, but they got to win on the road. And I don't, I don't buy, or I don't, I don't buy too much into winning on the road because at the end of the day, when you go to the tournament, those are technically neutral site games. And if you're a program like Duke, unless you're going up against a Kentucky, unless you're going up against a Kansas, unless you're going up against a Carolina, the the worst that's going to happen is there's going to be a split down the middle in terms of environment, in terms of fandom and who's showing up. Now, of course, you got to think about where you're playing. If you play in Las Vegas against UCLA, you'd think UCLA fans who have come under some criticism would outperform or outshow up uh, the the Cameron crazies. But this just goes to my point about performing on the road, which Duke cannot do right now, but they're not going to have real road games or what feels like road games in the tournament. That being said, if they were to beat the Canes, uh, this, this would have been a team do where I looked at them and said, yeah, they're a tournament team, but they're not going to make it to the second weekend. And I would have had to pivot and say, well, if they're on, they might make the elite eight. Now they got absolutely lambasted. They got destroyed by the hurricanes and I'm still sticking with my thoughts on Duke. I think they're a pretty good team. I don't foresee them making the sweet 16. I think they'll lose in the round of 32 maybe even get upset. I don't even know if it'd be an upset because they might be staring down the barrel of a six, seven seed. And we see those losses all the time. So I, I, there's just not enough consistency from Duke. They were riding hot. I also think Miami's really good on the flip side and I don't want to give away too much, but I'm itching. I am really, really itching to put them into the final four. If I need to look at the bracket, I need to look at seeds. I need to look at, even before all that, how they finish the rest of the season, the rest of this month even. But I'm itching, itching, itching to put Jim Laranega, Nigel Pack, and Isaiah Wong in the Final Four. Again, folks, they were in the Elite Eight last year. People forget. They were in the Elite Eight, and they played Kansas pretty well. Nobody was beating that Kansas team, as we saw. Jim Laranega, man. What a legend. What an absolute legend. He's living the life. He looks like the perfect Coral Gables resident, old, swagged out. He's in these jumpsuits. He looks like he's living a leisurely life down there in South Florida. But he just puts together winners. A legendary coach. He really is. And I think he should be mentioned with some of the best coaches uh, of, of, of our generation. He took that George Mason team to the final four who could forget the Kenny Kaji Shane Larkin, Miami team. That was a real threat. That was probably, Oh, well maybe I would love to, I'd love to get a Canes fans perspective on, on that team, the Kenny Kaji Shane Larkin team versus this team in terms of talent. But Jim Laranega is just awesome. He's a blast. And I don't know if anyone caught this from Monday, but whether it was intentional or not, I have to think it was intentional. After the Jim Beheim comments about how Miami bought players, Jim Laranega flashed a money clip with cash. Uh, it seemed like a very out of place thing to do. I genuinely can't tell you the last time I saw a coach whip out a money clip, because if you really think about it on the sidelines, why the hell would you ever need to do that? 
but well played if that was intentional there, Mr. Larinaga. And I want to see where this Canes team goes. And I know I've been on Virginia. I, I called them to win the ACC title preseason. They just suffered a small setback at Vatek. I don't know if they can suffer that many more setbacks because Miami's right there. So a couple things from that Duke-Miami game. One, it just sort of solidifies that I don't think Duke is a second weekend team. And I'm glad Miami blew them out because there's nothing I hate more than having to pivot and admitting that I'm wrong. I would have had to do that if Duke won. But on the flip side, I'm almost, I'm very close. I'm very, very close to taking Miami to the final four. Got to see how the bracket shakes out. Got to see how the rest of the season plays out. Moving on now to the Big 12, Texas at Kansas. This was another game that a lot of folks were keying in on and very excited for. But Kansas handles business. Good for them. They got killed, really, in Ames and weren't competitive at all against Iowa State. Hilton, obviously, a very difficult place to play. You know what's even more of a difficult venue? Kansas, the Fog, Lawrence. Texas saw that. Very impressed again with Texas. They're going to be just fine. There's no need to overreact. They battled. They battled very well against Kansas. And nobody wins in Lawrence. I've said this a couple times. It's very obvious. I'm not going to detract them from, from losing this game. And I think we saw that actually with the rankings. Purdue loses a close one to Indiana. How can you in good conscience really drop them, especially when Houston's kind of struggling against some teams? But look, Kansas is still a champion, right? They, they have the heart of a champion. Texas, I'm still impressed with them. This is, this is a different Texas team in the sense that when you look at their losses, unlike many other years, there's not, there's not some facepalm losses for the horns. They've been amazing this year. And I expect them to uh, vie for a one seed. Had they won this game, I think they'd be in great, great position for a one seed, right? Because the next three games are West Virginia, Texas tech and Oklahoma. Those are the three bottom feeders of the big 12. They're going to go three and zero against those teams. And then they are at home against Iowa state. Iowa state, as we know, is a very good team, but, Moody Center. I like Texas there. Then they go to Baylor. They probably lose that game. Baylor has revenge on their mind. They probably lose that game. Then they go to at TCU. Depends on if TCU is healthy. Depends if Mike Miles is playing. Depends if Eddie Lampkin is limited or not. Even with those guys, I like Texas in that spot. But without Lampkin and Miles, for sure like Texas. And then they finish the season at home against Kansas, who they could absolutely beat. And Kansas, they kind of remind me of Villanova from last year. Let me talk to you about the circle of life and how beautiful it really is. Villanova last year, championship medal, season vets, very much like Kansas. But during the season last year, there were a lot of chinks in the armor. There were some weaknesses that were exposed throughout the season. And so a lot of people were saying, you know what? This might be the year that there's a downfall. I think Jay Wright... Jay Wright did all that he could in the past five years in getting two national title winners. I think now is finally the time where we see the downfall. Little did they know that downfall was happening this year because Jay Wright left, Kyle Neptune took over. They lost a ton of talent, and they've been terrible this year. But last year, when people were writing them off, what happened? Villanova, and I, I don't know if people were writing them off, but they were wary on picking Nova to the Final Four. So what happens? 
they go to the final four because they were still good enough. They were still tested. They still had the dogs. And that's exactly what Kansas has. But then what happens in that final four? They got destroyed by Kansas. The Jayhawks, I think, opened the game with like six straight threes, something like that. And the game was over. And so some of those glaring weaknesses were shown. That final four game was not competitive whatsoever. Kansas ran away with that one. I, I, I see a lot of that in Kansas this year where some people may be wary about them. Some people are saying to themselves, entering this Texas game, well, Kansas has lost four of their last six, but they're still good enough to get to the final four. We've seen stretches of brilliance from there. I just think once they get to that final four, they may be overmatched by a team that's hungrier, that has less deficiencies, and is is geared up to play that game, just like they were last year uh, against Villanova. So like I said, circle of life. It's beautiful stuff. It all, it comes for us all. So I just, I don't know if I'm crazy, but there's some parallels there between this year's Kansas team and the Villanova team whose season they ended more from this past weekend. Memphis loses to Tulane. What an interesting, interesting team. The Memphis Tigers are, I feel like we're always talking about them at this point, uh, but they have a, they have a solid record. All right. I think they're 17 and six. And the losses up until, yeah, I mean, up until like they, they played Tulane first, the losses have been just fine. They lost to, at St. Louis the second game of the year, who is in contention for the A-10 title. They lost versus Seton Hall, who's making a bit of a push. Lost at Alabama, who you could argue is the greatest team in college basketball this season. And then here's where the wheels start to, well, I don't know if the wheels even fell off. It's just three losses that are very troubling. They've been swept by Tulane. The latest came this past this past weekend. So that's two losses to Tulane and then a loss against UCF. So I think Memphis deserves to be in right now, but they're playing with a bit of fire. They got Temple who pushed Houston to the brink and has a couple of really good wins. UCF again, who they lost. They got to go to Houston. It's most likely a loss at Wichita state. You can get done at home against Cincinnati. You can get done uh, traveling to SMU. Yeah. You should be able to get done. And then you host Houston. You got to make sure that the crowd's pumped and you're, you're on your a game because I think that's going to be a huge, huge matchup. It'd be amazing if they could split against Houston, but Memphis, man, a lot of, a lot of things happened this past weekend, but I think the most damning loss that a team suffered was actually Memphis losing to Tulane. Let's see if Penny can regroup and have a really strong finish. Last thing I want to get to before we talk uh, to Dallin is the Pepperdine Portland finish. What an awful, awful finish. Shout out to our guy, Jeremy Pope. He was on the program, Portland pilot assistant coach. He was kind enough to interview or hop on for an interview this off season. But Pepperdine Portland, what are the most gut-wrenching, annoying, lame losses for the pilots you'll ever see? So Pepperdine's down three. They rush to the hoop. Seconds are winding down in regulation. Player gets fouled and one. Okay, I actually thought that was a foul, but he goes to the line. So they're down one now. He's trying to complete a three-point play, this Pepperdine player. Misses the free throw. Portland secures the rebound. Pepperdine player is, I mean, the buzzer is sounded. 
it's it's basically one of those deals where the ref is just letting him play. The buzzer sounded, but then he decides to call a foul and a double foul because then the Portland player gets upset that nothing's being called and and the Pepperdine player is all over him. So he sort of swings his elbow up and then just the refs lose control. They assess double techs and essentially you'll have to watch this. You really, I'm not doing this description isn't doing it justice because it's just a back and forth, back and forth. But long story short, the game should have been over. Portland should have won by one. They did not. They end up losing that game. Gut-wrenching. And so this is just another example of refs making it about themselves. The game's over. Like You don't have to go by the letter of the law every single second. The buzzer sounded. They missed the free throw. Don't call something that... Don't make it about you. Don't call a flagrant once, once the game's over. That's essentially what happened. So Jeremy Pope, man, I'm sorry. That really sucks. I'm going to use our tiny little platform to vouch for you and to hopefully bring you some sort of justice, at least peace. But watch that if you really want to get infuriated. But do that after you listen to our interview with Dallin Cuff. Like I said, it was a lot of fun. want to thank Dallin for jumping on, and I hope you enjoy it. That is going to come on the other side of this quick message for SeatGeek. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from No Credentials Required to talk to you about one of our newest partners at Belly Up Sports, SeatGeek. Yeah, live sports is great on television, but the feeling of being at the arena is a priceless experience. That's why our friends at SeatGeek are there to help you find the best tickets at the best prices. Not only can you get tickets to sporting events, we can also get tickets to concerts, comedy shows, musicals, and more. Search for your desired event now at SeatGeek.com, enter promo code BellyUpSports at checkout, and you save 20 bucks off your first purchase. SeatGeek, life's an event. All right, we now welcome to the program a former captain of the Columbia men's college basketball team, one of the school's best when it comes to games played, three-point field goals made, three-point percentage, and currently an ESPN college basketball analyst and host. How lucky are we? We got Dallin Cuff in the building. Dallin, what's going on, man? Uh, Subi, great to be on with you, man. Uh, thanks for that nice intro of a uh, very, very complimentary of my uh, rep- mediocre college career. But uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it, man. Really fun to be on with you and uh, talk some hoops. Yeah. So first and foremost, I think you're a little too bashful. I think you're a little too modest. <laughs> thank you. All appreciate right. It. And and we're going to get into some big names from the Ivy League. You're certainly one of them making a wonderful career at ESPN. Hey, I caught that Friday night slate. Uh, I caught that VCU St. Louis game, which you were in, you were in the loo on the call and it's Friday is usually my palate cleanser day from college basketball because you get (laughs) inundated with it on Saturday, but you did a great job. Let me ask you before we get to your personal insights, Mm -hmm. who the hell is going to win the A-10? Does anyone want to grab a hold of that (laughs) conference? I have no clue, man. I I really, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really fun lead to cover. I was fortunate. I I call the games with Mike Corey, who uh, Mike and I did games back in NBC days. We were together 2000. Uh, 13, 14, or 14, 15, and 16, I think, doing the A-10, uh, which was awesome. It was great. It's a great lead to cover. It had some great years back then, especially. It's had good years since then. It's just this year, if Dayton's healthy, Dayton is the best team in the league. Um, Malachi Smith is finally back, and Kobe Elvis is back. But you take some time still to get those guys all to gel. Um, they can have some offensive struggles. Basically, every team in that league, has there are there are they are X at their best, but they can be Y at their worst. And Y at their worst, they can lose to anybody in the league, which is – disconcerting so it's it's unfortunately a one big league this year um but vcu ace baldwin for 37 on the road at st louis i mean he's 
when you got a guy like him, you could beat anybody as well. Defensively, they're very good. Not They turn you over, but it's not the typical havoc people think of. Uh, and St. Louis has has Yuri Collins, who when you take him out of the game, that team can struggle. And we saw that this week in, in both games. They lost to Fordham and they lost at home. So it's it's a fun league. Who the hell's going to win it? I have no idea who wins it in Brooklyn, but somebody's got to win it and somebody's going to the tournament. And any one of those three teams, if they win, can beat somebody in the tournament. Matchups are very important. Just look at it. But I think Dayton just has the best ceiling if they can get just everybody clicking on all cylinders. I got family in Southwest Ohio, and I love Southwest Ohio, Cincinnati. They went to UD, went to that first game. I think they played Lindenwood, and I was like, I love Mike Chavrams. I love this team. I love Deron <laughs> Holmes, and then they start struggling. I did pick St. Louis to win in the preseason, so I am rooting for the Billikens, but at this point, I'm just like, what the hell? Let UMass get, get the AQ. Let URI, <laughs> let Fordham. Let's, let's see it, man. I want some havoc. I don't know if Bernadette, the commissioner, is going to want that uh, because you want to win it, you want to be able to win and represent the league at best. Not that those teams couldn't do it. It's just that is complete chaos, and I'm not sure that those teams would acquit themselves as well as a Dayton, St. Louis, or VCU. But hey, that's why that's why Champ Week is wild, man. You just never know what's going to happen. It absolutely is, Dallin. What I want to do now is just dive into your personal journey because I think it's important we highlight that. Any guests that we have, we highlight that to our audience and our listeners because everyone sees you on TV. I'm curious to know. Take us back to your high school, even college days. You're a well-traveled individual. How does someone go from I think it was Florida to Columbia? Tell us through that that trajectory. Uh, I mean, recruiting. I was fortunate. That's the one thing that you know, the Ivy League schools are uh, our national brands, or they kind of have to be to try to fi- fill out the roster the best they can. Um, and full disclosure, Subi, I didn't even know what the hell Columbia was. I had no idea. Like that, just I, I knew Princeton and Penn primarily because basketball. But Princeton's still Princeton. But I knew Bill Bradley, and my dad was a student of the game. My dad played in the '60s. He was very at Duquesne and Pittsburgh when they were, had some really good teams, and he was taught me the game. Made me, you know taught me to love the game, respect the game. And if you do that, you can go, it can take you places. And it's fortunately they did just that for me, but outside of Harvard, Yale, Penn and Princeton, I, Dartmouth called in like the beginning of my senior, like calling September of my senior year. And I said to my dad, I'm like, where the hell is that? And this is old school. This is 2001. So we pull out the map and we look at Hanover, New Hampshire. And I was just like, I looked at him. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going there. I mean, he goes, this is your one veto. If any one of these other seven come with any interest and you're going like that was, because he was big on education. That's what my mom, my mom was a teacher, high school uh, English teacher for about 30 years uh, in the city in Pittsburgh. And um, they were very much like, you got to, we know you love sports. You're good at all these sports, but you got to, if you don't do well in the classroom, it's just, you're not going to play. And that was just, that's how life was. If I got, you know, six grades and five A's and one B, the question was, why did I get a B? Not congratulations on all your A's. It was just how I was raised. So when the academic piece came, we knew I don't want to go in that. That was an important piece for my parents more than me, to be very honest. I think they wanted to try to set me up for success after basketball. Um, so long story short, Columbia got involved uh, recruiting pretty late. I think it was December, actually, my senior year. So junior year, I broke my wrist, didn't play the majority of the season. I uh, flew off the rim, dumbass that I am, after. After practice was over, after practice was over, messing around, uh, flew off the rim, shattered my wrist, had surgery, uh, missed the majority of the junior year, uh, didn't play summer AAU that year for a number of different reasons, and then that just that was back when five star was still something an eastern invitational camp and you thought that would be enough to kind of help get you exposed and it it wasn't and i didn't perform well enough to, to get different looks that you know a kid that would want would want earlier in the year but high school season started well and long story short columbia reaches out around december start recruiting me um and there was there weren't a ton of options there was that you know i could have been a preferred walk-on at davidson i could have and all the academies record recruited me naval academy air force academy 
Um, and, but I just wasn't, my brother went to play, play football at the Air Force Academy. I just like, dude, I can't live that life. I just can't. That life is not for me. So long story short, I go to uh, Columbia. I, I went on my recruiting trip right after the season. And I think it was the last weekend of March or the first weekend of April. Um, and I was wrapped as soon as I got there. They, they flew into Newark and they made the coaches meet you out there and they take you on the train intentionally. So you come out underneath the garden. I looked up as a student of the game, loved the game, blown away. And as my dad said, your eyes look like saucers right now. So I was, yeah, I was locked in. I loved campus, loved my experience there. I was fortunate to go there and I wanted to go and play right away. And I played a lot of games. We lost a lot of games, quite a few my freshman year. And you learn through those losses. But uh, I guess that's a long-winded way of answering. You know, I got to Columbia. I was obsessed with New York. I learned more in that first year about, you know, life, adversity, uh, education, how much I was lacking in different areas in those first, you know, 10 months on campus. And it's uh, it helped shape my life and, for, and give me the opportunity to be talking to you because I firmly believe if I went to, if I walked on and played at Florida or I could have played at UConn and been like a walk-on and maybe made some minutes on some teams and won some games, I'm probably not sitting here talking to you. So I'm, I'm fortunate that I got to go to Columbia. Really neat journey. Really neat journey. First and foremost, a few things that I drew from that story. One, I'm an Indian American. So yes, academics, I can relate to that. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can absolutely relate to that. But uh, number two, just you, you talked about the opportunity for more wins. Let's put it like that. In looking at your career at Columbia, you gained in wins, right? You kept progressing forward. And I think that is something that should be highlighted. So when we talk about on the court actions at Columbia. I was looking at some of the schedules and some of the non-con teams that you played against were really impressive. Some really impressive names that you went against as well. I'm looking at, I think you played Villanova with Alan Ray, Randy Foy, Curtis Sumter, uh, Mike Nardi. Cal had NBA champion Leon Poe, who I'm a huge Celtics guy. So love Leon. Uh, NC State, Julius Hodge. And uh, Notre Dame, Chris Quinn, who I think is now on the, the heat bench. I think he's getting looks as an NBA head coach. And then Luke Zeller. We all know Tyler Zeller. Yeah. Cody's doing well in the NBA, but Luke Zeller. Uh, tell us about playing some of that super high-level competition and kind of looking back on where these guys are today. Is it, it Does it kind of strike you? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was – I was – and that was part of when I – because Armand Hill was the coach, and Armand right now is on the bench with Mike Woodson at, at Indiana, and he was actually part of that 08 championship team with the Celtics. Uh, Armand was – and Doc played together for years. Armand Hill was a great player at Princeton. He was so good, he left Princeton early, left in three years. In 1975, they went to – was, I think, the seventh overall pick in that draft and, and played about a 10-year NBA career, but a great man, um, but not a great college basketball coach. In terms of that, as the generations changed, he, he was – lacked connection with us but what he did do is he wanted and part of his recruiting we're going to challenge you like we they played at ucla the year before i was there and almost beat ucla and that was they played a very very difficult schedule and i found that appealing i wanted to be able to play against high majors and then hopefully succeed in our in our league um and then he, he only made it that first year we were like losses we were two and 25 we were terrible like he, i intimately understand the losing of locker rooms to see if to see a team mutiny to see a team fracture to see a team be selfish to, like I lived it and in my freshman year I I'd never lost in any sport I ever played and to lose on that level well I was just like what is this like but you really start to take a step back and try to understand and as you get older you see the issues and Joe Jones came in he was one of the assistants for Jay Wright at Villanova came in and took over our program and really did a great job of building the commitment was written on everything commitment to each other to the staff to the school that's we're going to be committed and then we're going to be all in for each other and that permeated our program and that was really critical because we were lacking that and you could see that as the bedrock piece 
And uh, and he built that into us in terms of how we're going to play. We played really hard, and we got you're right. We got better. The program improved, and recruiting improved. And uh, I if I still don't get hit mark. I don't think it hurt my senior year. I think those sophomore class we could have had a really special last year, but that is what it is. But back to your question about some of the big. It's funny. Anytime we all get together, there's always stories told. Off the court stories are the most fun. But they're always they always in the same way. Well, we were up six late against Villanova. We lose that game. NC State we're up six or seven late in that game. Julius Hodge spikes the ball, gets teed up. Me and him talked about this on air last year. He gets teed up because he's from Harlem. It was his first time coming home, playing in the garden. Uh, they were 12th in the country at the time or something. He gets teed up, gets his fourth foul. Herb Sendex, coach, puts him on the bench, and they actually got better. They played used to play that Princeton offense, and Julius was trying to do too much that day. And Janatsor bangs two threes in my face, one in Brett Lascalzo's face. Next thing you know, we're up a couple. We're down five or six. We lose that game. Uh, like A lot of those times, Cal, you mentioned, was like my senior, my sophomore year. My, my finger, you can't think you can see it. My finger is still jacked up. My pinky finger I can is see all that. crooked. So I got broke my hand, I broke my pinky finger, I think a game into the sophomore year. So you're playing as a shooter on your right hand with the two fingers clipped together. I shot really poorly early in that season. And then I finally healed and Cal was kind of the coming out party. I had a couple threes in that game and I like, and we battled Cal again, but we lose that game. The long story short is all these high majors, it's fun to play them. And I always say this, you can hang for 30, you can hang for 35. Can you go the full 40? Can you get over the hump? It's really freaking hard. Um, but it was all, those are memories that are, I mean, playing in the garden was special. Playing at Cal was cool. Uh, we beat UTEP at that same level, beat UTEP on their floor my freshman year, which was shocking given how bad we were. But I will tell you this, the best team we played, uh, this, was, this was scheduling that Joe Jones did not appreciate, but Armand did it the year, but he had it already in there. So my sophomore year, for Joe's first year, we go play at Cal's tournaments. We lose to Cal that first night. We beat Prairie View, I think, the next night. And then we fly up to Washington to play at UW. And one of our guards on that team, Morris Murphy, was from Seattle. So Armand always loved trying to go home to kids' places, like seniors' places, to play somewhere, which was always special. It was a good way of scheduling, I think. And But the problem was the time. You're going West Coast swing, back-to-back games, one day off, travel. Who was on that team? That was the year before they were number one seed overall. So you have Nate Robinson, Brandon Roy, Trey Simmons, Luke Jansen, and Subi. This was oh my! I've gosh. never been, I've I've never been on a court before where like within two minutes I'm like we don't belong out here. Like I was the only time in my career I'm like we we can't compete with this right now. We were shooting shots and we were on a dead sprint back. That ball was up our ass. Like I mean I, we could not get back in transition. I also Jones coach always wanted me pressure like I was our point guard that at times. So he wanted me pressure like 45 feet from the hoop. Nate Robinson is just walking, literally like walking by me. It was just a joke. What was going on in that game? We were down 20 in the first eight minutes. Coach got teed up. Like, it was it was an absolute route. So one time in my career, I'm like, that we got – we didn't just get beat. We shouldn't have been out there. It was – they were really good. You knew they were going to be really good, but they were good then, and our schedule did not help us. But that was a shellacking of – so that was not – we almost made it. That was never competitive, but that was a fun, still a funny that, memory. That is amazing because in looking at – like the sports reference and doing my research, you don't take into account those minute, but also huge details of flying across the country, the time change. And then of Mm -hmm. course you look at the rosters and we've heard so many stories about how incredible Brandon Roy is and was, Mm -hmm. and how injuries really robbed him of what probably would have been a legendary career if we're not already calling it a legendary career, but I've never spoken with someone who shared the basketball court with him. And to have that firsthand experience is it's a real treat for me to listen to, but yeah, you were able to, to play against some terrific opponents. And I think you brought up a great point in, can you hold it for a full 40 
or yeah. even if it goes to overtime. We've seen a ton of teams actually 15 versus two, 16 versus one, 14 three that are right there for about 30, 35. But it's that finishing kick, right? It's it's that middle Tennessee state over Michigan State finishing it mm-hmm. off. So it, it's that's what that's what makes those upsets even more special. So Dal and I appreciate just real quick, real quick on that because uh, when you said something interesting there, because it's the teams you're talking about in the tournament though, those teams have won championships. They won their league or their regular season, or they are twenty six and three. So they know how to do it. It still is really hard. It's like it's like the rest of us that are trying to close out teams that aren't you know on that NCAA tournament level. It's even harder. Like those teams expect to win, and we have seen in recent years have won. But you're right; it's really hard to finish the job. But they finish the job throughout the course of the year. It's with all these other teams that are trying to do the same thing for these buy games or guarantee games, as they're known, where you're getting paid just to go supposedly take a shellacking on somebody else's floor. It's when you hang for a while and that game pressure is real. The big team starts to feel tight, but can you outlast it? It is a little different. And the tournament teams, the reason why you see this one of those upsets happen is those teams are they are champions, and they're trying to show that in the highest stage. I'm glad you called that out. That's probably an, an innate thing within me and a lot of people where we're like, Oh well, Wright State doesn't belong on on the floor here, or right like uh, Oral Roberts has no business playing with with Ohio State. And it's like, well, they're actually really damn good in their own respect. They have Max yeah. Azmus, right? They they have a lot of talent yeah. as well. So I think that's a really good call out, and I appreciate that. I'm going to take that with me when I start picking these brackets down. <laughs> I would say the one the thing I always say the biggest difference between a high major player and a mid major player. And when I looked across, and Brandon Rose is a great example. That guy that I'm across from, he is two or three inches taller than me. 10 or 15 pounds heavier than me, runs faster, jumps higher. Like all the God-given stuff in most times is different. The skill piece of it can be equal. I can be as good or better shooter, have a handle better his. That like and that kind of like goes across the board. So when you when you take and can you negate some of the athletic advantage, these like think people based on the on the front of their jersey assume the kid may not be that good of a player. But like there's a reason there's like 0.8% kids that play high school play in college at division one level. Because guys are really freaking good. And when you're at guys that are led their conference in scoring it, whether it's Wright State or Cleveland State or Princeton or Loyola Chicago, it doesn't matter. Like you have really good players throughout the country. And when you have good coaches and good players and veteran teams, that's why we see more of these upsets now because it's become just more common. See, this is how I know you're a great orator, Dallin, because I know once I'm going to look at the bracket and I've mentioned all those 15 over twos. We had St. Peter's over Kentucky last year. Now I'm probably just going to take every 15. Over Don't do that. Don't based, do that. Off of, based off of you, man. No, see. Maybe a 14-3, maybe a 13-4. Mix it 15-2 is still tough. They happen more, but that's eh, still tough one. I love it. All right. Uh, Dallin, I want to get into a little bit about your career journey now. So we talked a little bit about your playing days. How about after that? In 2006, you were working with Columbia's radio broadcast, I think, right after you graduated. A lot Mm -hmm. of folks, Dallin, a lot of students, a lot of young people, and it's okay. They don't know what they want to do with their career, whether it be in college or right after it. On the surface, it seemed like this is exactly the type of business and industry you wanted to get into. Is that the case? It's funny you say that. Uh, let's just back up for a second. When I was like in second and third grade, I'm watching MJ on the NBC broadcast. I don't know how old you are, but watching every weekend, NBC, MJ, 91, 92, 93, those years. And I loved him since 86, like the one of my first basketball memories. But where am I going with this is I used to watch a game and be like, well, I'll be an NBA player. And then I'll go talk like Bill Walton does or like Mike Fratello does. I'll talk on the sidelines. That'll be, that'll be what I do. So I thought that's what I wanted to do. And then senior year of college, I'm going into – my senior year, and I'm, we have a young team. I'm the captain of the team, and coach is like, hey, you got to be on campus for all the workouts. 
so if you want to work, I know you want to get this. We're helping you get this internship at MSG. Coach Jones was huge. My guy, Mike Quick, for anybody that's in the New York area, Madison Square Garden Network, Quick's a legend and helped me so much in my career. And I think it's important to always recognize those because it is like a village of people that helped get me to this point. And those two are very important, uh, Joe Jones and, and Mike Quick. But um, they helped me get this internship. And man, dude, everybody's miserable from the people. There was just a management takeover. And you understand as a 21-year-old, you don't get it. But Everybody from me logging, literally logging Mets Padres highlights at 2 a.m. East Coast time while my buddies are like ripping up some club and I'm getting text messages. Where are you coming out? I'm like, no, I just watched Jose Reyes just struck out. Okay, we're going into the 13th. Like it was, it, it was, but I, whether it was me doing that or people on air or everybody, there's just a very miserable atmosphere. So I was like, maybe, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I should look elsewhere. So I'm doing that job on the weekend, like on Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights. I'm working on campus at the Office of General Counsel Monday through Friday to make money because the internship's paying me like 20, literally 20 bucks a day. Basically, it was like food. Um, so I'm like, well, what do I want to do? And I had a meeting this guy that he's, he's was the CEO. His name's David Bell, CEO of the Interpublic Group, which is a huge holding company that owns literally hundreds of marketing agencies across the country. So I said, maybe, maybe I want to be in sports marketing. Maybe that's something I should look into. So I said, he reaches out. I start working out his son, Andrew as a play, his son played at poly prep, which is in Brooklyn. And I'm talking to David and wondering like what could be long story short, David helps me get this into this fellowship. It was a diversity management training program in the advertising industry. Basically the advertising industry, especially the executive levels was so male and so white dominated that the Supreme court, there was a case that they had to diversify because we are, you're molding the mass media, our brain of our country. It's molded by, you know, white men. Uh, you know, that was, they were like, this can't happen. So the whole thing was to diversify management ranks. So they were trying to train people at a very young age to fast track them as well as doing other things. So I was part of this program in Interpublic. It was like 10 or 15 of us that had this opportunity. You rotate through four different agencies over the course of two years. So this is where I'm going to start my job doing in my summer. And that first summer I had Olympus Fashion Week. I was working in sports market, Olympus Fashion Week, and Olympus was a sponsor of uh, US Open. So they give me a car and I have these two dope events to work. At like 21 years old, I'm like, this is amazing. Like, I'm like driving out to Queens. We're doing this. We're doing this stuff at Fashion Week. It was awesome. Um, and I enjoyed that. But then Columbia called and said, hey, do you want to uh, be our analyst for our games? We're going to start a radio station, Jerry Recco, who's at WFAN, another one of those people instrumental in my career, um, and CBS. He calls, and he, we're going to have him be the play-by-play -play guy. You'll be the analyst. And I said, you guys going to pay me? They said, no. So deal. I'll do it anyway. This sounds great. I'm going to watch the games anyway. I'll be there anyway. All my boys are on the team. What's the difference? It'll be fun. So I'm doing the, uh, the this has becomes my side gig. And the first game we're going to go do is at Duke. First game I'm ever going to play in uh, Columbia. We're playing at Duke. We're playing uh, that crew was that, that ended up being the team that won the title eventually. That fr was their freshman class, I believe. That was like Brian. So, was it? Like the 2010 Duke. Title. It was 06, so 06, 07, 7, 8, 8, 9, 9, 10. Yeah. So this was, this was Shire as a freshman. Wow. Uh, I think Brian Kelly was on the team. Like that, that Nolan Smith, that those guys were around in that mix. Um, but long story short, we have like a 45 minute pregame because the first, it was, a, it was part of those like coaches versus, it wasn't coaches versus cancer, it was the 2K classic or whatever, the home sites. So there's a tournament technically. If somebody else playing before, the Duke game runs, it went short. So they, they're like, we're coming on air and we're going to fill to the Duke game. There's a 30 minute thing in between for teams to warm up. And Recco's like, what are we going to do for 45 minutes? I was like, these are my best friends. Let's just talk. So we do that for 45. You're up in the gantry sweating, just having to like do the Colombian Duke game. We get our brains beat and lose by 20. I take the headset off and I was like, I got to do this. This is it. So how the hell do I do this? So then I spent the next five years building out relationships, 
while I worked in advertising and marketing, knowing that that wasn't my long-term goal, but basically moving, moving agencies to save as much money as possible. Because at some point I figured I was probably gonna have to quit my job to do this if I really wanted to try. And, um, and making kind of connections. I mentioned Quick already. Uh, I was, Verizon was one of our biggest clients. Verizon launched Verizon Fios 1 while I was still working with them. We did all these Big East content rights and all these different things. So I, I did like the first round of the Big East tournament went to 16 teams, wasn't on ESPN. Verizon carried them. I'm a broadcaster too. They let me do that stuff. That got me in with Verizon Fios. I was already at MSG. So 2009-ish, I started to do some games on TV for them. And that took it to a different level because I was doing the radio and then I was like, oh man, the TV thing is so much better. You can break things down. Play by, radio is a play-by-play medium. TV is the analyst medium. It's, it's, it's very different in terms of how it, how it comes across. So when I started doing that, I'm like, yes, I got to find a way to do this stuff. So to not wrap up a long story, it's been pretty lengthy. Um, 2011, I'd saved enough money. Um, my brother, Derek, was instrumental with him just being like, because I'll weave in another random story. We're big Steelers fans. We grew up in Pittsburgh. We lose that Super Bowl. We went to the first Super Bowl in 09, won that one in Tampa, lose the one down in Dallas, the Green Bay. Rashard Mendenhall fumbled the ball as they were driving and coming back fourth quarter. Um, and as he said to you, I submit to you, for Rashard Mendenhall does not fumble that ball. You don't lose. You don't quit your job. Because I was then so angry, so down. We end up in a Denny's somewhere outside of Arlington. Uh, Denny's having a moons over my hammy at like 2 a.m., way overserved. And I basically just told him how unhappy I was with work. Like I was miserable. Like life was fun in New York and whatever. But I was like, I hate my job. I don't care about this. And he's just like, you got to quit. You got to try to do this broadcasting. You have to go all in. So that was me drunk. Then like two days later, I call him. And I'm like, hey, can you give me a pharmaceutical? He's an orthopedic surgeon. Yeah, you got any like pharmaceutical sales rep job? Like so I can make more money aside and try to do broadcasting thing. He just said, nah, man, I'm not getting you a job. I'm not trying to help you. Get you have to quit. You got to go all in. You could always find something else to do, but you got to push your chips on the table. And I did that. So that was that was in February. I was like, that made my mind, mind made up. I'm like, all right, here we go. Last six month push to get everything organized. Quit my job, I think like August 21st, 2011. Started doing games for Verizon, for MSG. Kept doing the radio for Columbia. Started doing some hosting stuff for Columbia and interview shows. Started cobbling it together. And to fast forward and be a little more brief about it, when NBC came online and NBC Sports Network got the, the Ivy League package in 2012, I think. That's what changed my career. I had a different agent, Amy Leone. She knew somebody at NBC, knew the guys at NBC, pitched me to be the, the analyst for their package. And that's what changed my career trajectory from being doing the regional stuff, which was going well, but then my first like national broadcast at like an NBC level, then put things like I was there was no going back. Like I'd 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 made it now we're gonna now we gotta keep pushing forward. I really wish the audience could see my big dumb face right now. I just lit up because in prepping and writing the questions that I had for you, Dallin. In zero world did I ever think that Richard Mendenhall would be <laughs> would be integral to why you're integral. sitting where you're sitting. It's that is that is amazing. That's why I love doing this stuff. And then you parlay that. I actually saw this. I'm curious to covering the 2016 Olympics in in Rio. You learned Portuguese in in two years. You're clearly a smart individual. How was that? Tell us about the the learning Portuguese and covering the Olympics. Yeah, so that was so obviously NBC. I did the, that first year with NBC in twelve thirteen um, while I was still doing all the other stuff. But I also, thankfully, for the folks at MSG, they they were like, "Hey, in two thousand twelve, that same year, like, do you want to learn how to be a host?" And I was like, "Yeah." I only played at Columbia. I uh, didn't think at this time. Bear in mind, the large media companies were still the only option. weren't streaming stuff, and they were still you know all about the stars, all about your your playing broad, your playing history, and your name was all that mattered. 
I'm not necessarily a really good broadcaster. I won't dime out people's names in every sport, but think of some Hall of Famers and think, man, that guy was a terrible broadcaster, but he got a shot or she got it. Well, there are very few she's that got the shot. They tend to have to be very good. But he got the shot and really wasn't good. But um, that said, uh, they were like, you want to be a host? So I started learning. I'd never read off a prompter. It was like aliens took over my body. I was horrible. So I came in all summer and worked at it and thanked that crew out there. They were again, the NHD people were awesome to just work with. They weren't getting, I mean, I wasn't getting paid. I was going out there. So I knew when I took over the show in the summer, in the fall, I'd be better uh, or be good, not good, better. It worked to become good. Um, so anyway, I learned how to be a host and they liked it. Whenever NBC had known that, they said, hey, we like you as a broadcaster. We want, would you want to be in one of our regional sports networks as a host and reporter and still do all our national stuff? It would be a full-time, you'd be an NBC employee now, not a freelance deal. Uh, I was all in. So long story short, I ended up in Boston. So I'm now in Boston there, 2013. They're, they're a regional sports network. Kevin Miller, the news director there, outstanding guy, develops talent, invests in people, said no to nothing. As long as I brought an idea, but I had a sponsor, I thought we could sell it, we can do it. And that really helped change my career too. And I wanted to do, I love, I love Brazil. To answer your question, I went there in 09, one of my best friends from high school, college, uh, grew up down there. Part of his childhood was down there, six, seven years down there. He fluently spoke Portuguese and Spanish as well. Uh, we went down there in 09, had literally the time of our lives. And they, so much that I thought I was going to learn Portuguese then. That was more about a, a female motivation than anything educational. Um, but th then I come back and the, the Olympics was there. And obviously the World Cup was there at 14. So I knew I was going to go to World Cup as a fan. Uh, Columbia professor Sunil Gulati used to be the president of U.S. soccer. So I knew we'd be able to get some tickets and do so. Um, but I wanted to do the Olympics ultimately because NBC was there and NBC owned the rights. And my only way to do that, I thought, was to learn the language. Because as a, as a basketball broadcaster, they weren't bringing me down there to be an analyst. This goes not, not just to name. This goes back to who they have a roster of people. I'm not making the cut. So I thought, well, how do I do this? If I learn the language and I could sell that and I could do all these cultural uh, societal, historical stories that don't really necessarily have to do with sports, but they fill out the Olympic experience. And I taught, told that idea to Amy Leone, my agent. She's like, they have this show called Sports Desk. It's the 30 minutes leading into the main uh, show. It's on every NBC affiliate. And then within the broadcasting primetime, they'll run some of those segments. So like, yeah, we should pitch this to Rebecca Chapman, who at the time was the oversaw Olympics there. She's going to pitch that to her. She loved it. She said, great. And then that was time to do the work. You know, so I started, I'd already started, but I hadn't finished. So I basically, I learned, took Rosetta Stone for like two months to get the basics. And then I saw, reached out to some of these online translator things, uh, online, online tutor things. And long story short, I met this woman, Carmen, who played uh, tennis in Oklahoma, but was Brazilian born, Brazilian, lived down there still in Rio, right outside of Rio. And connected with her and she was my tutor and she'd been awesome. I still talk to her probably once every month or so. Uh, but she was, that like helped change my uh, like understanding of the cultural piece of it, the slang, there's so much slang, like in any language, not, you don't just know the words, how to use the language. And the thing that I thought was interesting too, is there's a cycle. If anybody's ever trying to learn a language, it's called italki, italki.com. They have this thing come on, they have tutors and stuff, but what they do that's great is they just match you up with other native speakers trying to learn a language. Their plan is to keep you on their platform. But what we all did was just, you meet somebody and then you take it to Skype. But what that does is then allows you to talk to different people, hear different accents, different proficient, proficiency levels, which is huge. Sometimes I'd talk to somebody that was fluent in English and we'd spend half, talk for an hour, 30 minutes in each, ask questions about whatever's going on in our world, their world, whatever. Sometimes you'd speak to people that don't know any English. So then you've got to carry it in Portuguese, which, which is challenges you. So uh, I got to go down there and I'll wrap up another very long story as I go through these things um, with the first interview we're going to do. 
This guy's name is Hanato Sahizo, which means he's Mr. Smile, as people, people called him. But Hanato uh, Renato was his name. He was a Gari, a uh, street sweeper. But he became famous at the 2012 games. Uh, sorry, at uh, the... Uh, 16th? Uh, no, no, no. The 2012 games, when they closed it out, oh, okay. he was invited. Why he was invited is because he got famous from Carnival. When they clean up between, between the, uh, the different parades, he's out there dancing on Samba. He became famous. So he went to the 2012 games to close it out as one of like the representatives of Brazil. It's like him and Giselle are on the set. Like he's Giselle's doing her thing. He's he, so he became famous throughout that leading up to the 16 Olympics. So we go to interview him. He speaks no English. Um, the woman that was producing, and that was a cool thing about doing the Olympics too, is you're dealing with an all-star team, producers, editors on cam. I mean, it's the best that NBC globally has to offer. So it just you elevate your game to a whole different level. And she was a very high level producer. And she's like, all right, well, you know, we brought the translator just in case. Da, 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 da. I'm like, okay. I never, bro, I never been so nervous. I was like, forget playing basketball, forget the free throw line with three seconds left. I'm, I'm just my second home. To be like, dude, you cannot brick. You sold, you could do this. You've talked to a thousand people. You spent hours and hours doing this. The camera's rolling. You're going to have to deliver. We start talking. I get going. And we're, it was great. We had so much fun. He's laughing. He's making jokes. Da, 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 da. The translator is telling her what we're saying versus telling to make sure that the producer understands why we're laughing, what's going on. I can hear her doing it in English. Um, and we were just locked in. We had an awesome time. We get done. Producer, she just goes to me, I'm not going to lie. I thought you were full of shit, man. <laughs> I, thought you, I, thought, I thought you had nothing. I thought, that's why I, she's like, that was really cool. I'm like, thanks, man. It was, it was awesome. And I was down there for 36 days. Cultural immersion became so much better at the language, meeting so many people, telling really cool stories. Uh, it was definitely, it's the, it's the biggest highlight of my career. And I don't know if anything will overtop that because the, the work that went into it, how it went down, the country I love so much and the experience overall was just something I'll never forget. That's amazing. What detail, what depth. I appreciate you sharing that, Dallin. Hey, I know we got about 15 minutes before we got to let you go. I want to talk a little bit about the Ivy League and also just get your thoughts on some very quick hitters, if that's all right. So first and yep. foremost, um, the Ivy League was the last D1 conference to implement a postseason tournament in 2017. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on that? And did you ever feel jobbed like back when you were playing? <laughs> hey, you were like, look, man, we might have five wins on the year, but damn it, I want that opportunity to punch yeah. my ticket to the dance. Yeah, man, we hated it. We hated it because a lot of times we lost to Princeton. I didn't play Princeton eight times. We beat them once. We lost in overtime, I think, four times. Um, so it's like you're right there against a team that ends up winning it sometimes. And Though four year we lost in overtime, double overtime, and they they won it. They went they went undefeated in the league. Uh, but long story short, to be more brief, yes, we wanted it, but we understood why it wasn't necessarily fair. Because at that point in time, in 06 when I graduated, that was the last year that was won by Penn and Princeton in terms of their fifty year hegemony. For fifty years, it was them. Cornell won a share of one. Yale won a share of one. Brown won a share of one. Over that time, fifty years, one of those two schools won it every year except for like two, and then were shares a couple times. So, and they obviously share with each other at different times. My point is, we didn't really deserve it. The other six didn't deserve it. Then Cornell came and won three straight. They'd go, be, you know, go to the, the Sweet 16, almost beat Kentucky in 2010. Then you've got the Yale comes, um, Harvard comes on with Tommy a couple years after that. Yale comes into the mix. They beat Baylor in the tournament. The talent has been democratized. There is a more parity within the league. The, the tournament was necessary. And there was also a hope one day that you could get two teams. In the mid-2000s, 2010s, there, there could have been a chance of that because there were some really high-rated teams, Harvard, Yale, and Cornell in particular, that were, they were doing their thing. So the tournament was necessary. I love that it's still only four teams, so the regular season matters. Um, but 
yes, we felt like we got job, but now it's a great event. And I've been fortunate to call it every year for ESPN. I'll call it again this year. Um, and it's the one thing that I personally have a connection to in the sport that I truly love. And this year, I mean, last year's Cornell Princeton semifinal. I wish that was the final because it was like 90 to 88, huge swings in that game. And this year, those are the two best teams in the conference. And I hope we see them play in the final because either one would be a great representative of the league and could beat somebody in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I am glad that they expanded it and had a tournament for the for the AQ. You mentioned a lot of things that I'm going to get to here in the next 10 minutes. But one of them, one of the more fascinating cases, Tommy Amaker. All right. So a few years back, you look at Tommy Amaker, and I think he was associated with a lot of big name jobs. I think Michigan came came uh, top of mind for some folks. This was before Coach K even said he was retiring, but I think a lot of people said, mm -hmm. well, the end at some point is going to come. And this was before Shire was tapped on the shoulder to be his successor, but Amaker was there as well. And now Harvard's struggling a little bit, and I don't know if we're hearing Tommy Amaker linked to some of those big-time jobs anymore. My question to you, Dallin, is do you think Tommy should have jumped during that window? Do you think he made the right choice? And also, do you think there's another window in the future that Tommy, because he is a wonderful coach, but it seems as if uh, his name is, has quieted just a little bit. What do you think? I don't think he won. I think Duke is where he would have gone. Absolutely. Um, and there were reports that he got, he was, that's where the school wanted. The coach did not want that. Um, I'll leave that as is, uh, as, 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 as a colleague and a friend of Tommy's. Um, but he would have done a great job there. And he, he didn't get that opportunity. I don't see him particularly wanting to go anywhere. You know, I think not anywhere that would never leave anywhere. That's just anywhere. Duke is special to him. Harvard has become special to him. Bear in mind, he's been at Michigan before. He was at Seton Hall before. He saw, you know, what those, I'm sorry, he was at Seton Hall before. He saw, he saw what some of those high major um, experiences were like in, in, not that he didn't like them. I think he loves the fact that Harvard kids, like he's doing the breakfast club once a month. I mean, Obama was there like a couple months ago. Like they have these high powered people and he gets to challenge himself and think, way beyond basketball. And he's got a team that's way interested in things beyond basketball. He thinks he's helping mold minds that are going to impact the world well beyond basketball while having success in the basketball court. Now, granted, they've not been as good as recent years they had before. Um, and hopefully they get back to that. I do think the league overall, when the league shut down for that year, it hurt them. It hurt them in terms of developing guys. It hurt them in recruits. All your, all your seniors, quote unquote, now go grad transfer elsewhere. Tosin, Tosin Awoma is the best player in the league. Princeton, he could go to the NBA or he could be the best grad transfer. As one of the St. Louis assistants said to me the other day, he's got, you know, Princeton's got the best grad transfer in the country. I'm like, I'm well aware because he has to. He can't stay there. The Ivy League will not let him come back again, so he's gone. Um, all those things hurt the league and hurt Harvard in particular and all these teams. So uh, there could be another window. I don't think he really cares. I think it was Duke, and it'd have to be a special opportunity. And I'm not even sure what school that would be to really say to him, like, this is where I'd want to go to try to do this outside of the one that just that opportunity just passed. Yeah. It's tough to out happy, happy, right? I, yeah, I, I, yeah. That's, that's a great way of putting it. So Dallin, we'll get you out of here on a few quick hitters. Let's have a little fun. Here. I got it. I got, I got to one ten. We got, you got 10 minutes. So we got 10 minutes. We, go ahead. Do your thing. Perfect. I appreciate it, man. Uh, Super Bowl pick chiefs Eagles. Oh, um, it's a great question. I, I'm a huge Steelers fan and I just don't have time to watch much NFL anymore. Like I used to watch all these games, but all these other sports, some soccer, F1 that I'm into, different things going on, just don't have as much time. So I would say, I would say Eagles, but why would I be surprised if Mahomes won the game? I think we, I think as a, as a neutral, we all got the matchup we'd want. Cincinnati could be good, but Cincinnati still, we saw their line issues last week, causing some problems. So I think, I think ultimately the Eagles may be the best, uh, most well-rounded team. But I think it's gonna be a great game. 
rank these Ivy League moments. You mentioned a great one in uh, Yale over Baylor. It's not in my list right here, but you can feel free to do this. But rank these Ivy League moments. Cornell's run to the Sweet 16, which you did reference. Mm -hmm. Princeton beats UCLA. Harvard beating New Mexico in 2013. Lynn Sanity. I'm counting that as an <laughs> Ivy League moment. Princeton in 98 as a five seed beating UNLV. I believe that Princeton team was the highest seeded team yeah. uh, in Ivy League history. Can you rank those? And I'm happy to go over them again if you need a refresher. I would say because the moment is iconic and UCLA won the championship the year before, like the 95, that, that back, it was on a backdoor cut to win the game at the buzzer. Like it's just all the things that Princeton is and has represented the league so well. That's probably the most iconic moment. Um, I would say the most imp- one of the most important moments really was that 2010 win uh, was the Cornell team because that's showing now, oh, the league has grown. Oh, the league is different. Oh, the league has put – it's on a different – it's not Penn or Princeton. It's Cornell, and they just went to the Sweet 16. That then opened up the gate to a lot of di- different um, opportunities for different teams. I will put Linsanity in there as three because – I do think he was he was a proof point for Tommy. He was Tommy's first really great player, and said, "Hey, when you guys come here, this is the kind of guy we can." And now, bear in mind, he was, he had a triple double against UConn, and Jim Calhoun said that guy was the best player on the floor. Like they 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 beat UConn. And he said that guy was the best player on the floor by far, and UConn won the title a year after that or two years after that, whenever that was. So, insanity was important just to say that hey, you know, this is this happens in our league. This is important, and that helped. Harvard's recruiting, helped Yale's recruiting, helped Cornell's, helped everybody's recruiting, seemingly except for Columbia and Dartmouth. But, you know, we can digress there. I shouldn't say that. Kyle Smith did a really good job. Kyle Smith did a great job, actually. He found some diamonds in the rough. Um, but the league had to elevate, and the league did elevate. Uh, I would say the Harvard one was important, too, as, again, another proof point. Kind of a, They were close the year before, if I recall, um, but they win in that game and, uh, and, and helps, again, formalize the league as something bigger than what people may have thought. May have thought. The Baylor game would be uh, big in there. I know you didn't put it in there, but uh, and then I would say the am I missing? I'm missing, I'm missing the '98 one, but is there something else I'm missing too? No, you you covered them all there. All right, well, and well, the '98 one, the way they ranked fifth is important, but because it's so long ago, I think the more recent ones of success that are outside of that Penn and Princeton like duopoly is really important. I also want to say that Torian Prince's explanation to the media about rebounding <sighs> the ball. I'm going to put that as a great Ivy League moment because that was after the Yale loss. That was awesome. Toughest environment you've had to play in. You mentioned Washington. Any others that come to mind? The toughest environment you've had to play in? The Palester when it's packed, man, because you can't hear anything. It's old school. And uh, the first year I played there, we showed up late, bro. We left New York City. Remember, you play Friday Cider back in the the day now in the Ivy League. They don't do it anymore. First year, they're not doing that. Um, but we leave New York at like three o'clock for seven o'clock game. It's rush hour, March third. They're twelve and zero in league play. If they win the game, they clinch the. They're going to the tournament. They clinch the bid. I wake up from a nap, crossing the Ben Franklin Bridge. Sun's down. I turn to Murph and I'm like, "What time is it?" He goes, six forty. I'm like, "What?" <laughs> He's like, "We're not going to make it in time. We show up at like seven ten. They give us twenty minutes. But here's how you have to walk into Plestra. You walk down a tunnel and you come onto the floor to go back to this band box. You know." locker room they give you but you have to walk the whole floor and the old, before they redid the, the, the bleachers and the plaster the players the fans are on the court so you've got 7,700 whatever it is strong 7,717 whatever the hell that number is they're all there packed to the gills to watch their team go to the tournament we walk on your freshman point guard is already nervous because the people are just screaming at you for that 94 feet walk in the locker room get changed this is our last weekend with Armand Hill 
I was our starting freshman point guard. And our mom would be like, ah, young buck, this is the Mecca. This is where you got to show out. All right, coach. Well, they pressed the hell out of us. Your boy had seven turnovers on the game. Five oh, of them in the first half. Not good. But the next day, my dad spit its paper. He flew up for the game that weekend. Gets the paper of Philadelphia Inquirer. Shows it to me after we lose to Princeton to end the season. He's like, yeah, great shot in the Inquirer today. It's me going behind my back between two defenders. He goes, little do they know that ball won't out of bounds. So it was not a good day for your boy. We get blitzed. They rush the floor on us because like, they're, they're cutting down the nets. Like They're celebrating. It's not about rush beating us. It's their going to the tourney. We walk off, and we're sitting in the locker room. And that place, you can't hear anything. The acoustics are terrible. So it's loud, and they got it going. The place, like, shakes. We were 0 for 4 there in my career. We had some games where we should have won, where they shot 48 free throws, and we shot 6. Clearly, I'm not so salty. Um, but I remember sitting in that locker room. And I was always the last one out of the locker room, done with the shower. I'm sitting there with my towel probably still on, just like, God, that was, that was so bad. And Arbonis goes, Young Buck, remember I told you the Mecca? You was the Mecca, and you was shit today. Shit. Not sure oh, no. curse on this podcast. It was so great, it was, but but it was so true. I was like, "Yeah, I'm my bad coach." He's like, ah, "We'll get him tomorrow, at Princeton." All right, we didn't get them tomorrow, at Princeton. We gave him a battle. We didn't win that game. Um, but that place was really. I mean, Villanova the Pavilion was tough, but the Pleasure. It, it's it's I, that's my favorite building in college basketball, and I got the chance to call a game at the Fog this year, which is really special. But I didn't play at the Fog, and I think playing at the Pleasure is just a unique, unique beast, man. That history, as you walk around the concourse, there's just nothing like it. Remarkable. Hey, I'll tell you what, Dallin, if you're not able to, or if you don't want to continue career in media, I think you could do impressions. Uh, <laughs> that was, that was really impressive. Uh, ESPN personality that you see around campus that you see in studio and ESPN personality that doesn't do college basketball, but you can chop it up with them. So we know, for example, Barry Melrose is a hockey guy. Could you have a conversation with Barry Melrose about Yuri Collins? Who give me, is there, is there someone in ESPN like that? That's funny. I I thought about this would be an interesting podcast because there is everybody that covers a sport here really loves other stuff too and is passionate about other things. Barry is Barry is hockey. Barry's hockey. Um, I will say Ryan Clark loves college hoop and he we talked about LSU a lot in recent years. I don't see him as much anymore on campus. Uh, things definitely changed pre and post pandemic. Um, but we would chop it up a lot about LSU. He he loves college hoop. Um, I'm trying Steelers to think of guy the, too. Well, of course, that's we, we we started talking about that. I think I introduced myself to him, be like, then we they would rap about that. But once he realized what I did, we would talk about college basketball uh, after that, and, and of course the Steelers as well. Um, yeah, that's probably one of the, that's one that jumps out to mind. But there are others. That's the biggest one. I will say this: SVP is the most like genuine person on the planet, and genuinely loves like everything about sports, and just is, is so in tune to different things across the sports spectrum. Uh, it's always very impressive. I believe it. I believe it. Uh, if you could have dinner with one person from college basketball, player, coach, media, all encompassing, literally anyone, dead or alive, to talk ball, family, anything you want, who would it be? Oh, man. I would probably say because of his significance, it might be the late, great Bill Russell because of just what he did beyond sports, um, but also within sports and just the, the winning mentality. Um, that would be up there as long with, as well as, you know, coach Wooden would be up there as well. Those are the two that did jump out to my mind. Um, uh, most directly Titans down. We're going to get you out of here on this. I ask every single one of my guests this, and it's our last segment. It's called bring them up on stage. Who's a person you would recommend to come onto this podcast? Who is someone I can shamelessly DM pester and bug like I did you to share some stories like you've been so kind to do anyone in mind. Uh, that's interesting. Um, 
the nicest guy in the business is Lafonso Ellis, but I would say that's that's without a doubt. Chris Patola, who I cover, I do a lot of serious ACC work with and stuff at ESPN, um, was was a captain in the Army. You know, played at Army, thousand point score there. Uh, coached with Duke uh, in their 2010 team as an assistant, and uh, he's just a really smart, interesting, funny guy. And I think when you ask good questions and ask for different stories, he'll deliver. And you let him let him to let him wax poetic and pontificate like I did. Uh, you'll be impressed and, ha- and have some fun with him because he's seen he's seen a lot, man. You do a couple tours of duty and you know in, in service. And you, you've won a championship. You've coached the Olympics in 08. Um, you, you've, he's been around the block in a bunch of different ways, and he's also just a really funny, smart guy. Absolutely. Chris Patola, I may need your help, Dallin. I'll leverage you. For <laughs> I'm, I'm open tomorrow. I'll, t- I'll tell him I, I'll tell him I gave, your name. <laughs> gave your name to my guy here. You'll hit you up. You're the man. Dallin Cuff, thank you so much for spending some time. This was a real pleasure. And uh, we'll be watching the rest of the, the season with bated breath, man. Thank you again. Anytime, man. Be well. All right, we want to thank Dallin again for jumping on. That was a lot of fun. Talked about everything from his college basketball days to how he broke into media, of course. I thought the most interesting story was him sharing his time covering the Rio Olympics. How cool is that? Learning Portuguese. You want to talk about dedication to your craft? Dallin Cuff is the epitome of that. And I also thought it was really neat about the story he was telling uh, where where he just knew this is what he wanted to do and he didn't want to have a safety valve. He couldn't. His safety valve was taken away and he was like, look, 110%, I got to go after this. So that was that was great. I also really enjoyed his perspective on Ivy League hoops, especially the, the Tommy Amaker uh, question that I had. So it's not every day that we're able to get someone with the Ivy league perspective, the ESPN connection. And, uh, he's, he's just a lot of fun. He's a great, great interview. And of course he's going to be someone that we're going to be watching every single day leading up to March madness. So Dallin want to thank you one more time, uh, for jumping on and, and sharing your stories. All right, let's get out of here real quick on my good thing. No bets today. Cause we got no Taylor. He didn't send them over to me. Uh, he obviously isn't able to provide a good thing, but I wanted to highlight the Missouri Valley Conference, the MVC. So last episode, I was discussing about how I love, I really do love uh, Arch Madness. I think it's one of the most fun conference tournaments that we have. I feel like it's always played, it is played a little bit earlier than most, and it's always great theater. So here, I mean, the, the MVC is going to be insane. The tournament's going to be insane. The regular season is champion is going to be insane. Here's what we're looking at, folks. Drake is at top the conference at 10 and four in conference. The Salukis. How about Southern Illinois? The Salukis at 10 and four as well. Belmont, 10 and four. Bradley, 10 and four. That's four teams that are 10 and four at the top. Then there's not much drop off. Larry Bird, baby. Indiana State down in Terre Haute, nine and five. Murray State, eight and six. Northern Iowa, eight and six. Missouri State, eight and six. Then from there, you get a severe drop off. Illinois State is, is five and nine. Valpo, four and 10. UIC, two and 12. And poor Evansville, winless in conference, sporting a four and 21 overall record. But 
Drake, Southern Illinois, Belmont, Bradley, Indiana State, Murray State, Northern Iowa, Mizzou State, all of those teams within a game or so of each other. Good for the uh, the Missouri Valley Conference, excuse me. What a fun tournament that is going to be. And, and I love when these mid-majors and these mid-major conferences are incredibly competitive. Let's go ahead, get on out of here, though, folks. One more time, it can't be stated enough, can't thank him enough, Dallin Cuff. What a blast that was. Open invite, my man, anytime you want to jump onto the program. And thank you for listening. We will catch you next time here on Theater and College Hoops. Enjoy the theater. Enjoy the week.